Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6, please. Matthew chapter 6, as we continue to go through the model prayer that our Savior gave to us. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We're looking at the phrase in this, or this petition, in this model prayer, thy kingdom come. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is a confusing subject for many, and what is the kingdom of God is not easily answered. The Jews misunderstood it. Even today, I fear that many of us misunderstand the concept of the kingdom of God. And so to give a brief answer to the question, what is the kingdom of God, would be incomplete, somewhat confusing, and maybe even misleading. And I don't want us to be confused, not that I've figured out every aspect of the kingdom of God, but I have read through and meditated on all 50 occurrences of the phrase kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven in Matthew's gospel and done a lot of reading in this area. We identified the kingdom of God in two ways two aspects of the kingdom of God. That is God's sovereign reign, which he has never given up. And James Orr says, there is therefore recognized in scripture a natural and universal kingdom or dominion of God, which embraces all objects, persons, events, all doings of individuals and nations, all operations and changes of nature and history, absolutely and without exception. In other words, God's in charge, he's in control, he's ordained all things. That's his universal, sovereign reign. He rules over all. But then there's God's saving reign. That is his reign, his ruling over his people whom he has saved and brought into his kingdom. In other words, God's kingship, his rule, his reign, his sovereignty is recognized in the hearts of his people, those whom he has chosen and those whom he has placed in his kingdom through regeneration. What will result of that is that it will be their complete salvation, the end of which will be fully seen in a future and redeemed universe in a new heaven and a new earth. That saving reign is grounded in the work of redemption. How do we define the kingdom of God? I often try to put this as simply as I can. A very simple definition is 
God's kingdom is his rule established and acknowledged in the hearts of sinners through salvation in Jesus Christ. It is lived out in a real way in this world. And that sovereignty of God, his rule, will one day be recognized by all in the future millennium, and then the giving up of that kingdom to God the Father, and then the establishment of a new heaven and a new earth. So think about the kingdom of God as breaking into this world through Jesus Christ in a spiritual sense, and it will be realized not only by those who are God's people today in the kingdom of God, but it will be realized by all in the future as well. So let's take a look at this petition, Thy Kingdom Come. And I want to highlight that first part, thy, that first word, thy. The kingdom belongs to God. The ownership of the kingdom is God. It is his kingdom. May I say this, then, the kingdom is exactly what God says it is, not what we think it is. Does that make sense? The king cannot be removed or separated from his kingdom. God is a king. He is the king. No one is a king without a kingdom. So it is his kingdom. This was, of course prophesied in the Old Testament. It was recognized by someone, a heathen king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, that God has a right to rule over the earth. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13, when your days are fulfilled, you will rest with your fathers. I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. This is being spoken of to David. He shall build a house for my name, that's Solomon, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So it is God's kingdom. I'd like to read Psalm 2 because this speaks to, it doesn't matter what people in the earth are going to do, what the nations are going to do, what other kings are going to do. But Psalm 2 says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder, cast away their cords from us. He who sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he, meaning the Lord, shall speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his great displeasure. Notice this. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the nations for thine inheritance 
and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they who put their trust in him. Christ, who we recognize as king, will be king over all the earth. It is God's kingdom, and since it is his kingdom, it is not of this world. It is not like human kingdoms. Since it is his kingdom, since it, is, since it belongs to him, since he gets to set the rules, since he gets to tell us what it is, it has his character. It is God's kingdom, both the sovereign and the saving reigns, as we have looked at those two aspects, both of those are God's kingdom. As such, because it is God's kingdom, he owns it, he establishes it, it is far above, and it is greater than any kingdom on earth. It is superior to any kingdom founded by men. God rules over the kingdoms of men in his sovereign reign. If you want to turn there with me, look at Daniel chapter 5. Verse 18, Daniel chapter 5, verse 18, And thou, king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. What do we see in here? It was God who allowed Nebuchadnezzar to rule. God gave Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, a kingdom. I believe he's talking to... Um, Belshazzar, Darius at this time. Look at Daniel chapter 5, verses 20 to 22. But when his heart was lifted up, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. He was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beast, and his dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, and he appointeth over it whomsoever he will. Talking about God's sovereign reign, it is God's kingdom to do what he wants. And thou, his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this. Look at verses 25 to 28. This is the writing on the wall. This is the writing that was written, many, many, tekel, eupharsin, this is the interpretation of the thing. Many, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. In other words, God determines how long a nation will be in power and when he will take them out of power. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Paris, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And so we see these verses and we realize that even in the sovereign reign of God, it is his kingdom. He raises up nations, and he puts down nations. He raises up rulers, and he puts down rulers. 
The other aspect of God's kingdom, which belongs to him, of course, is the saving reign. And what Christ did on the cross of Calvary in the shedding of his blood for our sins is he purchased us, he purchased the citizens of the kingdom with his dead and with his shed blood. The kingdom was given him, was appointed to him by his father, Luke twenty two twenty nine, and I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me. The church today is the kingdom organized in this world. We might look at the church as a means of entering the kingdom of God or expanding the kingdom of God. But the kingdom was given to Jesus Christ by his father. And the children of the kingdom, us, are given to Christ as well. And then at the end, Christ will give the kingdom back up to his father. But Luke 22, 29 is interesting in that it also says that Christ gives the kingdom to believers. And I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed upon me. And so he gives the kingdom to his followers. And so the kingdom is God's kingdom. I want to look at the character of the kingdom. I want to look at the word kingdom itself. Thy kingdom come. The character of the kingdom. If it's God's kingdom, it follows that it is an eternal kingdom. Does it not? It is an eternal kingdom. Psalm 145.13, speaking specifically of the sovereign reign of God, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. God's kingdom will never end. And once you become a citizen of that kingdom, you will never be cast out, and you will never end. Great civilizations are extinct. Nebuchadnezzar's bones are turned to dust. His great kingdom, over which he was the head of gold, no longer exists. Earthly kingdoms come and go, but the kingdom of God of which we are a part of will never end. The nature of this kingdom of God is that it is not of this world. So it does not involve earthly wealth, earthly splendor. It does not involve earthly power. It is an eternal kingdom that is not of this world. And, folks, it is a universal kingdom. God's kingdom is eternal, and it is also universal. His sovereign reign, no doubt, is universal. We understand and accept that. But one day, gathered around the throne of God, will be peoples, tongues, and languages from every nation on this earth. And they will all proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so it's a universal kingdom. And he is right now gathering into his kingdom from every tribe and every nation and every people group. The character of this kingdom is also a righteous kingdom. Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is... He's going to tell us what the kingdom of God is. Paul, writing in the book of Romans, chapter 14, he says the kingdom of God is, it's not eating, it's not drinking. 
So it's not physical in nature. But this is what it is. But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The character of God's kingdom, eternal, universal, but it is a righteous kingdom. The first explanation of the kingdom of God in Romans 14, 17 is that it is righteousness. Righteousness. Hebrews 1, 8. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of what? A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Turn, if you would, to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 18. Jesus is before Pilate. Starting in verse 33. So the character of this kingdom is an eternal kingdom. It's a universal kingdom. It's a righteous kingdom. But it's a kingdom that's based upon truth. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and thy chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What have you done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from here. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king? In other words, Jesus is saying, Yes, I am a king. It was an idiom, a way to, to answer in the positive. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into this world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Everyone that is of the truth recognizes Jesus Christ as king and will enter the kingdom of God. So it is a kingdom that is based on truth. So thy kingdom, and the next word is the word come. I want to talk about the coming of the kingdom. I'm going to talk about this under three C's. Conversion, commitment, and character. How does the kingdom come today? If we are praying this petition, how does the kingdom come today? And the answer to that is by conversion. There is an entrance requirement for the kingdom of God. And salvation is the means of entrance into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God must be entered, and the way to enter that kingdom is through salvation in Jesus Christ, who is the king. Let's look at some verses. 
You're in Matthew chapter 5, hopefully, verse 20. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of God. Now, if that were the case, <coughs> excuse me, none of us would enter the kingdom of God. I know I wouldn't. My righteousness doesn't even come anywhere near the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. I mean, we have a garden. I don't give 10% of all the produce in my garden to the Lord. Pharisees, though, when they were growing herbs in their garden, would tithe of that. There were no more righteous people than the scribes and the Pharisees in that day, at least esteemed by the people. The entrance requirement to the kingdom of heaven here is a righteousness that must far exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. Do you have that righteousness on your own? Well, praise God, somebody earned that righteousness for us. And his name was Jesus Christ. Take a look at Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 16 through 26. Let's start in verse 13. Matthew 19. Then were there brought unto him little children that he should put his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Permit little children, forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to become like a child. Childlike faith, we learn in another place. Behold, one came, verse 16, Son of him, good master, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit, that I may have eternal life? Son, why do you call me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. Saying to him, which? Jesus said, thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith to him, all these things have I kept from my youth, out, youth up, what lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, if thou wilt be perfect, go and sell what thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had had great possessions. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, by the way, Jesus was not saying the way into the kingdom of God was by giving up everything that you own. He was pointing to this man's sin, which was covetousness. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall with difficulty enter into the kingdom of heaven. And in verse 17, it says, if thou wilt enter into life. And in verse 16, he's talking about eternal life. And again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter in the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them, said unto them, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. In other words, there's nothing I can do 
to get myself into the kingdom of God. It is impossible. God must put me there. He must give me life. And so one must enter the kingdom of God through salvation in Jesus Christ, which means to have eternal life, to have spiritual life. You must enter into the kingdom of God through salvation. Uh, Matthew 23, 13, a further verse. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, neither permit them that are entering to go in. And part of that, the idea behind this verse is they were trying to get people not to follow Jesus Christ. They were putting people out of the synagogue for confessing faith in Jesus Christ. And hence, they were shutting up the kingdom of heaven for people to enter in. They wouldn't go in because they wouldn't believe Christ. And they're trying to keep people from following Jesus Christ. And so to enter the kingdom of God, we have to be converted. Like little children, putting our faith in Jesus Christ to enter the kingdom of God, to have eternal life. 1 Corinthians 15.50 says that mere flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This is a, a marvelous passage of scripture. 1 Corinthians 15.50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. And we're, we're, we're in a, the uh, chapter on the resurrection here. And Paul is concluding it. He's saying, look, you can't, by being mere flesh and blood, enter into the kingdom of heaven. Then he goes, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. There's coming a day when even after we die, because we have eternal life, spiritual life through Christ, we will be raised from the dead and allowed into the kingdom of God in a glorified body. You looking forward to that day? Mere flesh and blood cannot be in the kingdom of God. Turn back, if you would, to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. So how does this conversion occur? How does one be saved and have eternal life and enter the kingdom of God? Of heaven. Matthew chapter 13, verses 18 to 23. Hear therefore the parable of the sower. Let me back up and let's go to verse 11. He actually tells the parable, the beginning of chapter 13 of the book of Matthew. And, you know, a sower went forth to sow and he sowed the seed. Some by the wayside, the fowls came, devoured them. Verse 4. Some fell upon stony places. They didn't have much earth. They sprang up because they didn't have deep roots. They were, the sun came up and dried them out, scorched them. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. But others fell into good ground, brought forth fruit, a hundredfold, sixtyfold, some thirty. Then Jesus says, Who hath ears to hear? Let him hear. The disciples came in verse 10. He says, Why do you speak in parables? Verse 11, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of salvation. Is that what it says? To know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. 
but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and shall have more abundance, but whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that with he ha what he has. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because they seeing, see not, hearing, they hear not, neither do they understand. And Isaiah spoke about this, verse 14, verse 15, their heart has become gross. Verse 16, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And then he explains the parable, <clears throat> verse 18. Hear, therefore, the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom. Now, we would say it's the word of God today. But Jesus specifically says they need to hear the word of the kingdom. When they don't understand it, then cometh the wicked one, catches away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. <clears throat> he that received the seed in stony places is the same as he that heareth the word, the word of the kingdom, and immediately with joy receiveth. But yet he has not written himself, but endureth for a while. When tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, the word of the kingdom, immediately he is offended. He also that received the seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word, the word of the kingdom, and the care of this age and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. But he that receives seed in the good ground is he that heareth the word of the kingdom, and here's the difference now, and understands it, who also bears fruit, proof that he understood it, proof that he received it, and he brings forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So there must be a hearing of the word of the kingdom, an understanding of it, that leads to a steadfast faith where the person produces fruit in their lives. According to Mark 1.15 and Matthew 21, verses 28 to 32, there must be a repentance a turning from sin and self and slavery to Satan to Christ and a childlike faith turning to Christ, that humble childlike faith, then the person will be converted. Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. Matthew 19, 14. Luke 18, 16 to 17. These things must take place before a person can enter the kingdom of God. Now, later in two more sermons, I'll probably get to an application here. But one of the applications is this. We need to stop watering down the gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaim it like Christ has proclaimed it, like the apostles proclaimed it, that salvation is not just about knowing for sure I'm on my way to heaven. Salvation in Jesus Christ is being taken out of Satan's kingdom and slavery to him and slavery to sin and being put in Christ's kingdom where he rules over our lives. Is that lordship salvation? You betcha it is. Salvation is not knowing about where my destiny is going to be. Salvation is knowing about who's ruling over my life as king. That's Jesus, my Savior. And there needs to be a humble, childlike faith and conversion turning to him. Now you know these verses. John chapter 3, verse 3 and verse 6 
speak about the fact that there must be regeneration in our lives before we can be part of the kingdom of before we can even see the kingdom of God. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again or born from above, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. I added the word even. I shouldn't do that. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He won't even know that it exists unless he has been born from above. Verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Verse 5. Verily, verily, I say that except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. A person needs to be born from above to see the kingdom of God, to even know it exists, and to enter the kingdom of God, to be born from above. Now, is that man's work or God's work? Whose is it? That is God's work. God reaches down, and he gives life where there was death. And he awakens that soul dead in trespasses and sins. And gives them spiritual life. And that happens when we come to the end of ourselves, according to Matthew 5, 3. Poverty of spirit, when we come to the place where we realize we can't do it on our own. We are completely bankrupt, poor, beggar-type poor. We come to the end of ourselves and we say, Lord, you have to do this. And in order to enter the kingdom of God by conversion, as we read in Matthew 5.20, there needs to be a perfect righteousness, a righteousness that far exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, folks, that's a righteousness we have not produced on our own. Jesus Christ, from the time that he was born, Till he died on that cross, obeyed his father, even to the point of death. Fulfilled every aspect of the law in our place so that his righteousness could be credited to our account. Lastly, turn to Matthew 7, 21. When that occurs, and it is real, you will have yourself a person that will be doing the will of God and will never turn back. Never turn their back on Christ. Never turn their back on the word of God. When a person is converted, there is a radical change in that life. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, when you read that verse, if you isolate it from the scriptures, it could be teaching that we could work our way to heaven, but we know that's not true. A person who has been converted 
given life where there was once death. Been freed from captivity to sin and Satan and put into the kingdom of his dear son, Jesus Christ. Will be a person who will never turn their back on Christ. Luke 9.62, a verse I memorized many, many years ago. No man, having put his hand to the plow and turning back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Do you want to turn back? No, I don't. A person who is genuinely converted will be one who will be doing the will of God until the end of their life. And when these things are true, that person is put into the kingdom of God. Colossians 1.13 says that God has delivered us from the power of darkness, that's Satan, and conveyed us or translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. That is an irreversible event that changes a person forever. Now, will we fall into sin? Probably. Will we backslide? Probably. But we will never fully and finally fall away from Christ, our King. And so how does the kingdom of God come? Today it comes through conversion. I want, to, I want you to look at Matthew chapter 13. Verses 44 to 46. Jesus told numerous parables about the kingdom of God. I would challenge you in your personal time, your personal devotions, to read through the Gospel of Matthew and note every time Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. Help you to understand some of the things that I've been saying here. Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, Jesus is going to tell us what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a treasure hidden in a field. In other words, not everybody's going to see it. Right? It's out there. Not everybody's going to see it. Which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy of it goeth and selleth all that he hath, and he buys that field. Now, the understanding of this verse is that it would be wrong for me to take the treasure after I found it on somebody else's property, right, and take it for my own. First of all, I don't own the property. But if it were on somebody's property, the rightful owner of that treasure would be who? The one who owned the property. And so what he's going to do is he found this treasure. He's out walking on somebody's property, and he finds this treasure, and he quickly reburies the treasure, and he goes out and he, get, he sells everything that he has so that he can buy that field and hence get the treasure. Again, verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant man seeking fine pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went out and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Okay? First thing we need to note, what this is not about. This is not about Jesus buying the kingdom or buying the church. That's not what it's about. These two parables, if you would, are stressing the value of the kingdom. The kingdom is a treasure 
that is worth selling everything that you have to obtain it. Not that that's how you get in the kingdom of God. That's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is how valuable the kingdom is and what one must do to gain the kingdom. Membership in the kingdom is to be viewed this way. It's not saying that you could buy your way into the kingdom, but that you should count all else as nothing. All else is loss in comparison to the kingdom of God. And be willing to give up everything for the sake of the kingdom. That's what salvation is being pictured as here. Giving up everything for the sake of the kingdom. The other thing that's being stressed in this these two parables is taking some action right now while the opportunity is there and realize that no cost is too great to enter the kingdom of God. Give up everything to follow Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Have you counted his kingdom of such value that you're willing to give up everything to follow Christ, to be a part of that kingdom. To be converted into the kingdom of God, there's a process that goes on here. Conversion in the kingdom of God involves, number one, being chosen for that kingdom. James writes in chapter 2 and verse 5, Listen, my beloved brethren, has God, not, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? If you're saved here today, you have been chosen to be part of the kingdom of God not based on any goodness in you, not based on anything that God would foresee that you would do. You were chosen for the kingdom out of sheer love of God, the sheer love of God. And one day, he called you into that kingdom. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 says that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you into his kingdom and glory. In Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14, I believe this is the parable of the marriage feast. And in verse 2 of Matthew 22, it says the kingdom of, is like a, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king. So here again, we're, the subject is the kingdom of heaven. He made a marriage for his son, and you know, you know the story. He sent out the servants to call them who were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. He finally, you know, they made light of it, and they, they, they all had various excuses. In verse 8, he says, Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they who were bidden were not worthy. 
Go therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So they went out and they brought people into the marriage, the marriage feast. In the end of this parable, it says, For many are called, but few are chosen. What an amazing parable about the kingdom of heaven. That God extended an invitation to us, an invitation at which we repented of our sin and we made a willing response to that call. Not just head knowledge, but repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. That's one of the ways in which the kingdom of heaven comes today. Second way is by commitment. First was by conversion. The second is by commitment. What I mean by that is very simple. As we respond to the word of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom of God, as we respond to the rule of Christ in our lives so that he rules over us as he rules in heaven, we're committed to his cause. As we do that, people will take notice. And others, to put it as simply as I can, will want what we have. And so there's a commitment on our part to respond to the rule of Christ in our lives so that he rules over us as he rules over heaven. And is that not how the kingdom of God does come today? as we recognize the rule of God over our lives and live out what he brought us in the kingdom to do. And then the third C, conversion, commitment, and character. How does the kingdom of God come today? By character. It is by us, the citizens of the kingdom, bearing the image of our king and the character of that kingdom. Romans 14, 17, what is the kingdom of God? It is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness. Yes, we were given a righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, so that we could enter the kingdom of God. But as we have seen through the Sermon on the Mount thus far, it is a righteousness which needs to be lived out in our daily lives. Are you living out that righteousness as a citizen of the kingdom? Peace. Peace with God, accomplished for us on the cross of Calvary and the peace of God ruling in our lives daily. It doesn't matter what comes in our lives. We know that our king, our king, only allows what comes into our lives to make us like Christ, to strengthen and fortify our faith, to bring us to the point where we're dependent more on him and less on ourselves. I find that a daily struggle, don't you? Joy in the Holy Spirit. I got myself in trouble many, many years ago. 
by teaching that joy and happiness are two different things. Happiness depends upon happenings. Joy is something that lives deep in my soul that no matter what comes in my life, I can still have joy. And here it says joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans 14, 17. Joy is one of those things that that the Spirit produces in our lives as we're connected to him and we walk in him and we live for Christ. Holiness of heart and life is a requirement for the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is where I want to close with. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Wickedness, sin, the opposite of righteousness, holiness. Verse 11, and such were some of you. But ye are sanctified, you're washed in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Holiness of heart and life on an ongoing basis is a requirement for those who are part of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God in my life or the fact that I am in the kingdom of God means that I will exhibit the characteristics of that kingdom. Those characteristics will dominate my life and I will be dominated by righteousness, peace, and joy. Can you say that? Can you say your life is dominated by righteousness, peace, and joy? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that you do for us. Thank you for choosing, calling, and converting us into the kingdom of God. Praise your name for all that you've done in Jesus' name.